0: If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now.
1: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events
2: okay I'll kick off uh, thank you for coming uh, I should say S- Simon Jenkins only calls me a geographer if I write something he doesn't agree with if I write something he agrees with he says the economist Danny Dawling says this <laughs> um, which which tells you something about British society and one thing I've done in this book is started off uh, with a series of pieces of evidence from a series of economists about what they say about happiness and well-being. Because I think that can be more powerful than simply saying a load of epi- you know, epidemiologists and social scientists say <laughs> it's good for you. Once the economists start saying it's good to be a bit nicer, uh, then we're beginning to win. Richard Bagley from London Publishing Partnership asked me, I think about two years ago, he might be here, so I'll be careful (laughs) whether, whether I'd like to write a book in the series Diane Coyle was editing. He was quite open about what the book could be about, and so I managed to persuade him that I wanted to write a book about a paper that I'd done almost 10 years earlier that nobody had noticed. This paper was done with my colleague, uh, Demetrius Ballas. Uh, So the book is dedicated to Demetrius. And it was a paper in an epidemiology journal, which looked at what had happened in people's lives in the last year, and then related it to changes in their stated state of happiness. There's a survey, which is done every year, which has a different name publicly, but it's called the British Household Panel Study for those who study it. And for four years in the 1990s, at the end of this survey, they included an open-ended question. And the open-ended question was, what has happened of significance to you or your family in the last year? And there were four spaces, you could list up to four things. And I thought this was a really nice question because we weren't giving people a set of options and boxes to tick, we were actually asking them to say to us what had happened. Admittedly at the end of quite a long survey, so most people are fairly exhausted at the end of the survey and just want it to finish, which might influence the results. And might explain why the most common answer, almost three quarters of people when asked what of significance has happened to you or your family in the last year. Have a think for yourselves, by the way, how you'd answer that in the last 12 months. Almost three-quarters of people said, nothing of significance has happened to me and my family. But luckily, the survey is of so many thousands of people that we got many, many other answers. And it wasn't just that many things happened to people, but people very often mention other people that these things have occurred to that matters to them. I won't make the story too long because we will get on to a debate, but this explains where the book come, came from. Then I was intrigued that it was possible to take all the answers that people had given and bunch them into 32 things. There are only 32 things that actually can happen to you or your family in a year. <laughs> you may think there are more, these are 32 things that at least happen to a half a percent of the population. If it's too unique, I'm afraid we can't study it. The least significant of the 32 things that can happen to you, is you pass your driving test. But that happens to enough people for it to actually figure. That question was asked at the end of this survey four years in a row. Halfway through the survey, people were asked another question. And the other question was, and it's a very British English worded question, all things considered, All things considered, are you reasonably happy? Or, unreasonably or, happy. No, or More than reasonably happy or less than reasonably happy? So there were just three options, three options to tick. And then, then what Demetrius and I did, and these were very different parts of the survey, so you know, nobody would have thought at the end would have remembered the question in the middle. We tried to predict whether you could work out whether what happens to you in a year, when you're allowed to describe it, influences your state of happiness. And what we found is that we could get quite a good model. On average, people are slightly more than reasonably happy because we're optimistic. So taking everything else into account, people are actually slightly more likely to say that they're a bit happier than they think they ought to be. Uh, Human beings, many, many surveys find that they're optimistic. The people to whom nothing has happened to in a year though are a bit less happy than average. Of the 32 things that can happen to you, the thing most likely to be correlated with you being more happy is you start a new relationship. And the thing, most likely to make you unhappy, is ending a relationship. And that's interesting because presumably, you know, at least one person is a bit happy about ending a relationship. <laughs> um, but it comes out. And it's all about relationships. So after, after the starting a relationship with somebody new, the next set of things that make you most happy are births. And if you actually put all the births together, This isn't, I've become a parent, I've become a grandparent, somebody in my family has become a parent. If you put them all together, they're actually more important than starting a relationship on your own. Uh, I had never realized how important people felt uh, births to be. This isn't having children. Having children and being a parent isn't associated with greater happiness. Um, And if we look educational events, If a parent mentions an educational event, it tends to be associated with greater unhappiness. Um, So it is, my child has been expelled, truanted, failed in the exam. But for young people, it tends to be associated with greater happiness. But anyway, the births are the second most important thing. Women are three times more likely to mention having given birth than men are to mention having become a father. Grandparents are even more likely very important to grandparents. And on the flip side, the second most important thing associated with being less happy is deaths. And if you put all the different deaths that can occur together, they actually outweigh the ending of a relationship. The most common deaths are the deaths of our parents, but they have an effect on us. The deaths which are particularly sad are the deaths of grandchildren, and they have a terrible effect on, on grandparents. And I I can go on and on about this. Jobs matter. Gaining a job, getting promotion makes you happier, but not as much as losing a job or getting demotion makes you upset. So the less precarity we have, the better. Holidays are actually pretty neutral. Um, And if you begin to think about it, we tend to have a high expectation of holidays. But after the event, particularly family holidays, are not associated with, with net greater happiness. Other forms of leisure where you've had more choice yourself what to do are. So that's all in the book and that's that's how the, how the book began. I then used the order of these things to go through what might a better politics involve. And if deaths and health related events are so important to us, uh, and they do appear to be, and just Think about it, it's easier, the older you are in the audiences, it's easier to understand. But getting through another year without something else going wrong, if it matters so much to us, why do we spend less per head on our health service than almost anywhere else in Europe apart from Greece, and only Greece after the financial crash? Why do we spend half as much than they spend in Switzerland? Why do we spend 46% less than they spend in Germany? Why do we spend less than they spend in France, if this is so important to us? Why are we happy to accept 6,000 children dying a year in this country, the highest rate of deaths of children anywhere I can find apart from Romania? Could it be that we don't think deaths and illness are that important, a bit of a stiff upper lip? You know, it's, we don't want to waste too much money on health. We've got production to do in a Britain to make great again. Um, <laughs> maybe those in charge of us don't understand what matters most to people. And I was shocked that, th- that this came out so high. I was surprised that people do not, and ONS have shown this in the survey last year of the Assets and Wealth Survey connected to happiness. Having a large amount of equity or a large pension isn't associated with greater wellbeing having a small amount of savings is, because it allows you uh, to do things. We can look at the most common causes of death. For 23 causes of death for children, we have higher rates of death than for all those 23 causes in Sweden. This ranges from road traffic accidents to people being born with congenital malformations, and then we can say we have a problem with our society as a whole. But there are numerous things we can do we can slow traffic down to the level that's normal in European cities, which is 30 kilometers an hour, that's 18 and a half miles an hour. We could introduce speeding fines of the kinds they have in Switzerland, or in Finland, or in Germany. One of our footballers was fined, I think, half a million euros for driving under the influence of drugs. He didn't even hit anybody. But in Germany, he was fined half a million euros and paid it. We don't even conceive of speeding fines as proportional to income. Why don't we even think of doing that if these things really matter? And to speed through these things, when you look at work, why do we think it's good to have a society with a high amount of precarious employment, with a labour market in which the young in London are going from job to job to job to job? Do we think it makes them happier? Do we think it somehow creates a more productive country when our rates of productivity are 20% less than they are in France? And I may may naively think that a great deal of this is simply caused by people not realising what most people want. And my worry is that the analysis was about a cross-section of British society. And perhaps what Demetrius and I should have done is taking out the subset of people from the BHPS who are in some position of power and seeing what makes them happy. And maybe for that group, getting a lot of money makes them happy. Maybe for that group, the deaths of relatives are less upsetting. Maybe that can explain why you have a Secretary of State for Health who thinks it's okay to do what our Secretary of State for Health is doing. And we didn't do that. But I, I do wonder whether some of our politics is caused by a disconnect between people at the top and what they believe and what most people express in, in their, their lives. And the last one I'll talk about, I can go on and on and on, is relationships. Relationships clearly matter. We have one of the highest divorce rates uh, in the rich world. So what makes it easier to sustain relationships and harder to sustain them? Now you want to end relationships when it's a bad relationship, but does it make it easy to sustain relationships if you organise your society where you have long commutes to get to work in London and you arrive back at 8 or 9 or 10 o'clock at night? Does it sustain relationships to have high rates of debt in the country, much higher than is normal in the rest of Europe? Have endless European comparisons. You can play a kind of trivial pursuits game of which country in Europe is better than us at this, or this, or this, or this. To what extent could government do things differently that would make it easier for people to form relationships when they want to form them, and to keep them when they want to keep them going. And a really obvious one is housing. If you are normal, or even better off than normal in London, but under 42, you're gonna have to rent, and you might get together with somebody else, and you might rent together and share one bedroom and have somebody else in there. But what happens when you want to start a family? And if people find that they can't start families because of the way we organise our housing, the most expensive housing in the world, that might be having an effect on people's relationships. And if relationships matter so much to people, perhaps we should think about relationships when we think about housing policy and tenancy agreements and so on. So the book goes on and on through this, and it ends at the very end looking at a couple of surveys of regrets in life from the USA when you ask people towards the very end of their lives what do they regret, what kind of things come up. And one of the things, remember this is the USA, people regret having got into so much debt to pay for their education. Right? That should be a warning to us about what we're currently doing. Uh, they regret not starting a relationship with the person they wish they'd always done, or starting a relationship with the person they wish they hadn't, and then it's too late. They regret not saying goodbye to people in the right way before they died, and they also regret worrying too much about things which in hindsight, they shouldn't have worried about as much. So it's a story about everyday lives using a statistical survey at the beginning to, to defend why it is worth talking about these things and why just getting richer, nobody, or fewer people mentioned getting a lot of money or trying to, as important to them as compared to passing their driving test that year. And I think we need to realize that we need a politics that actually looks at what concerns most people most of the time and doesn't make us more miserable. It's not going to make us ecstatic, but we currently live in a country where things are done worse than in most other countries in Europe, and that probably would make our mental health worse, but it makes our general level of well-being much worse than it needs to be and we can see this in children in particular we can see it in rates of anxiety and depression and we could do something about it and our politicians could be brave enough to say although i'm talking about housing policy what i'm really talking about is people's relationships with other people Uh, thank you very much and richard's now going to tell because he's read the book (laughs) <laughs> it's going to tell, tell me what, what he disagrees with, and then Rupert will come in at some point and tell us why none of this is as easy as we're suggesting. <laughs> <laughs> so. right. well, yeah. it
1: takes me a very long time: to, <laughs> It takes me a very long time to read a book, so uh, before agreeing to this, uh, Danny uh, said he'd just send me a 20 page summary, but I, I have managed to read the whole thing mm. and, and, and enjoyed it. Uh, Danny, I wonder how much, and it seems to me this is part of an argument that you could think was absolutely at the centre of politics from many point people's point of view about the nature of the good life and happiness. And, and perhaps on the right, um, many people still thinking it's about GNP per capita, it's about higher levels of income, um, higher levels of material consumption whereas environmentalists, people thinking about the kind of society we need to move towards, thinking about the evidence that those forms of happiness uh, or life satisfaction maybe have come to an end where we can get to through higher material standards, and we have to now think about other ways of improving the real quality of our lives. I wonder whether you see that as absolutely central to political conflict, if you like.
2: Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think politicians are being that Machiavellian. I do think they have very different beliefs. Quite a lot of economists early on in this, um, I should say, the economics of happiness has changed dramatically in, in the last 10 years. Quite a few early on produced models that said income is terribly, terribly important. And it can appear to be terribly important if you don't put everything else in, because, People with higher incomes are able to get a house with a mortgage, so they're not being kicked out and so on. Once you confine yourself to just what people say is important, then becoming wealthier isn't associated with happiness. And if it was, you know, this is one of the wealthiest parts of the UK, so we should measure ecstatic levels of happiness in the middle of London <laughs> when people are going through the divorce courts you know, in their millions, you know, they should be annoyed with each other, but they, they should be saying how happy they are. And they're not. But one way of looking at, you can look at surveys of happiness and you can just put a couple of things in and say that getting rich will make you happier. Uh, what we think we did, which was unbiased, is just put everything in that people had mentioned. Um, and that, that was one way to get out of that. And then we were surprised. Getting a house, though, does make people happy in that one year, but I think yeah. it's just they feel so lucky they've actually managed to get the house.
1: I think it's a... I I find it enjoyed really uh, seeing a quite new method being used to get an angle on happiness and reassured in a way that it it produced results that were fairly consistent with some of the economists working on happiness, including particularly Andrew Oswald, Mm. uh, emphasising the importance of social relationships. But I wonder what what it leaves out. And if you're asked about important events that have happened to you in the last year, you probably don't say, well, I just went on quarreling with my partner in the same way as I have done every week for the last 10 years. Uh, There are a lot of things that are major influences on
2: happiness, which perhaps you wouldn't put down as an event. Yeah, We, we, we could have done it more sophisticatedly, um, perhaps. I, I suspect in that group of people who said nothing happened to me at all, part of nothing happens at all is the same old quarrels. Nothing interesting happened. We didn't go out again for another year. You know, so somewhere trapped in these answers is are those kinds of things. I mean, interestingly, we're sp- splitting up. Splitting up, at least three quarters of the time is instigated in heterosexual couples by the woman, not by men. There's only been one year in which men instigated more divorces in Britain, and that was 1946, when they came home and discovered what had been going on. Um, and and it, it's interesting to look at that. We also look, particularly Americans, uh, look at gay couples uh, to take out the effects of being male or female to try to work out, you know, is it the more economically powerful of the partner who splits up, uh, and so on. There's so much more you can include. One problem with this is that people often worry that when you're studying happiness, you're trying to elevate the level of happiness of a population up to a very high level, as if constantly feeling happy is a good thing. I'm much more interested in the avoidance of misery than than actually trying to, and I think it's much easier for politicians to do things that would reduce miserable states, particularly the very worst of miserable states and the long-term repercussions. You know, the long-term repercussions of a child unnecessarily dying for decades later are enormous for the lives of the people around them. But you can't really... If you title the book, How Government Can Make Us Less Miserable, I don't think we could try and encourage as many as you to be interested in it, then how, how can it make you happier? There's also a problem of happiness if you ask the superficial happiness question. You know, on the scale to one to 10, how happy are you? Can I just check, who's a seven today? Just, anyway, most people say seven. You you get the highest rates in America where people are taught to say they're happy. And you get lower rates in France and and Japan. Of course, the logical thing to say on how happy are you from the scale to one to 10 is five, not seven. Seven is showing you our ability to overestimate our levels of happiness and the fact we're not very numerate <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a level. But also, for general well-being, you know, life is not about always being happy. Uh, you wouldn't know if you were happy if you weren't average a lot of the time. But I've never seen a good defense for misery and for sadness, <laughs> being a good thing, being good for the soul, that kind. I've heard people say it. I've never found it very convincing that there is a good reason why people shouldn't feel too well off.
1: I often think that people don't know really what the causes of their happiness and unhappiness are. And when I think about these things, the way I try and convince people that something is important isn't through evidence of what people say and know. And if I'm trying to convince people of the importance of social relationships, I go into biology and I say, you know, wounds heal faster and you're more resistant to infection and and things like that. That social relationships are highly protective of health. And so the, the, there are very different sources of evidence. I think what's in a way what's interesting is how they do coincide. They tell the same story. But I wonder And it it seems to me what your book is trying to do is set out, if you like, a a policy shopping list for a a Corbyn Labour Party. Is that is that how
2: you'd see it? (laughs) Uh, It it was kind of in the back of my mind, but but no, no, less radical than that because it it would be very sensible for some Conservatives to do look at some of these things because they're vote winners. You know, if, if some Conservative ministers came out and said, we think it's really important that people don't get miserable, that they don't have this degree of anxiety in their lives, that we want fewer children to die on the roads and so on, and we want to do a few things to make it a bit better, they'd sound much more reasonable. I'm surprised politicians on the right don't attempt to sort of circumnavigate around Labour and at least pretend to care more, even if they don't actually care. You know, why don't their spin doctors, instead of telling them to throw a dead cat on the table, tell them, look, you know, make out that you are actually really worried about the fact that our health service is spending half as much as the rest of Europe. And rather than say, but the city of London helps finance it, which is just so, it doesn't work because the rest of Europe doesn't have a city of London that somehow manages to spend more on health. Actually say, look, we do need to get health spending towards the European average and we're gonna try very, very hard. Even if you're lying, it would sound good. <laughs> well, what's interesting I think about part of the right is that part of the right really doesn't believe that's good, believes it's not a stiff upper lip approach. It's worrying about the well-being and the happiness of people is the beginnings of the route to damnation. We'll become a weak country. You need the cold showers. You need the early morning runs. You need to be made to do your prep in the evening. You need to get high exam marks. You need to work harder. We need to compete in the global race. And this soft lily-liver stuff about worrying about people's well-being is not the right way. And I think you can begin to look at this and say, It's not your fault you believe that. You grew up in a country which had a particular empire mentality, which could only produce people who could go out and be colonial officers if we dehumanise them enough to be able to send them out and behave in that way. But that time has come to an end. We no longer have an empire. We no longer need quite so brutal and uncaring a set of men, and it's particularly men who have those attitudes. Uh, so I, th- I think this is, this is useful more widely.
1: But the right could argue that actually more important than any of the things you're discussing is simply maintaining an economic system that works. If we went into very major recession, huge unemployment, uh, the economy was no longer uh, competitive, oh. we'd all uh, suffer catastrophic uh, decline in life satisfaction and so on. And Not only would we all be poorer and more unemployment, but uh, we'd have more of our relations dying. Uh, they might defend themselves. I was at an event with uh, David Willits uh, yesterday and he seemed to think that the pursuit of uh, higher levels of income, even amongst the super rich, was about wanting greater economic security. Yeah. That it's insecurity that's the real problem and they could argue that not only for individuals
2: but the, our whole economic well-being. And, and while, the, while the billionaires come into London we become more secure, you know, that each one creates, <laughs> you know, a dozen jobs in service, we have one of the highest employment rates in Europe, you know, hopefully we can get 90, 95, 100% of working age adults doing something for a wage, that's the aim. And the working
0: uh, age gets... The the the
2: working age gets longer. The problem with that argument is is that when you look at the countries that have have suffered really badly in the crash, when you look at Spain and you look at Greece and you look at Italy and you look at Iceland, they're actually doing better than us when it comes to some of these measures of health. We think we have economic security, but our population is not behaving in a way uh, as if it does have that. We have a housing crisis. It's very similar to housing crises in those countries in which house prices have halved, where people are being evicted. Eviction rates doubled in London. Newsrooms of people can't get themselves housed. We have a fantasy that we have a strong economy and it's good for people.
1: I wonder, let's throw this
2: open to anyone here who wants to that. comment and then ask reaper yeah because i've got Rupo. the most
0: unpopular job in the world mm-hmm. <laughs> as the token political token
2: what's yeah. thing are you yeah. happy Is to to be a <laughs>
0: Yeah. Better to be a token than be unemployed, obviously. And
2: tell us what vote you've just missed.
0: Oh, gosh, it was a finance bill. Uh, yeah, um, hopefully, nobody will notice. Yeah.
2: Are you happy, Rupert, but, to sort of round up at the end?
0: So, yeah, I mean, I but, like the cover particularly because it reminds me of the E generation. And apparently, both Cameron and um, George Osborne came from the ecstasy guzzling
2: generation. Yeah. I, <laughs> I can't so imagine perhaps... him ever dancing in a field, though. And, uh,
0: with half his brain missing. Isn't there a picture of him with long straggly hair? Do you know the one I mean? Yeah. There is one circulating that's allegedly him in a field in somewhere. With
2: <laughs> there there are many face. rumors about pictures of him. Yeah. yeah.
0: But let's, let's
2: <laughs> have some comments. Yes. You, you
3: began by uh, asking the question, the population as a whole seems to desire happiness and you define what happiness was and then ask, but why doesn't that manifest itself in the decisions that government take? Then you went to go on to ask, well, perhaps there is a political class that has interests distinct from the population. Then you also introduce the wealthy as another social category, distinct or or rather um, distinguishable from the rest of the population who aren't wealthy. But that social categorization could go on down the population, ticking off people who actually in London, for instance, are able to afford a house, are relatively content. And I just wonder whether it's helpful to start off this conversation by asking about the population as a whole, rather than acknowledging that there are distinct... So, uh, economic interests which, re- which, which, which manifest themselves in different social yeah. classes. And the question is given that the majority, albeit a small, you know, Galbraith, um, the, uh, the, contented, the contented minority seem to be able to secure electoral victories, yeah. the question is why doesn't the electoral majority, why isn't it able? To secure a government that will look after its interests you know Bernie yeah. Saunders has said the poor aren't voting
2: yeah now it's, it's a very good point we could have cemented it ONS asks people a question every year about their economic situation and around about 30 percent say they're comfortable uh, and it's quite remarkable and comfortable doesn't mean that much it means i don't have to worry too much about the bills i do wonder whether there's a kind of keep the Aspedestra flying aspect about that comfortable 30%. you know, All that you actually have got is a three-bed house somewhere on the outskirts of London that somebody's told you is now worth a fortune, but it's still a smaller house than most people in Europe will actually live in. You might just be able to pull together the pennies to send your child to a private school as one in five Londoners do, but most Londoners who are doing that are actually only just managing to do it. But compared to a normal European, most of Europe doesn't have private schools, we don't know that. Compared to, an, you know, and for this we'd have had to have done an international comparison. Are our comfortable, well-off conservative voters sending the child to a mediocre private school and then they get into a Russell Group University because they haven't worked out in fact anybody can get into a Russell Group University because we have expanding numbers now. Are they only happy because they can see what the alternative is for them, and it looks bad. Can they not imagine what it would be like to be in a country where the houses were a little bit more spacious, the working hours were a little bit less, but you actually paid more per hour, which is normal in France and Germany, where you were not worrying about your children having to compete on exams so much, because if they didn't succeed, they'd be on a living wage or minimum wage job. And you can't imagine that. And that's, that's, my, that's my concern about identifying a group of people being separately content because I, I suspect they're not. And whenever I meet people who are well off, they don't strike me as being happier than the people I know who are less well off. I mean, anecdotally, I'd love to do this with a camera. The number of times people are smiling in different parts of a town, if you go to the shopping centre in the poorest part of the town and sit on the bench for half an hour, and then go, so you can do this in Cowley Centre in Oxford, and then go to Summertown, where the house prices are two million a piece, and sit on the park bench, and look at the people going into Fowl and Balls. They're not happy going into Fowl and Balls. Whereas the people walking around Cowley Centre with the Poundland Shop, now, it's not very scientific, <laughs> but I don't see reduced rates of anxiety. More scientific, there's been uh, studies of the taking of prescription drugs in the US. Uh, very high rates of people taking antidepressants and so on. More, the higher up the hill you are. So Beverly Hills is much higher than the rest of LA and the highest popping of, of pills.
0: You must have found that there were
2: different reasons. I mean, did you take age into account? Mm. Age has a big effect. It, your happiness on average dips. So I think the minimum's around about 46, 47. I'm on the up. Then happiness levels on average go up, so we took that account. And the lovely thing, the survey is big enough, we know a about 90 year olds. And 90 year olds on average stop being concerned about themselves. Yeah. It's really quite refreshing. Hmm. Partly just glad to have got to 90. <laughs> and they and they don't complain about their health. Yeah. So uh, we took a whole set of things. The is entitled something like happiness related to age, age squared, something, something, something and something. And Demetrius is an economist. Right. I
0: mean, uh, the other thing is, you're a professor at Oxford. Yeah. The majority of your students are going to be this complacent public school educated
2: yeah. elite. How do they take your findings? I that. The noticed that. of <laughs> have noticed that. Uh, the, the, narrow my student, yeah, the, the narrow majority of my That's students uh, went to state schools. It's, it's, it's 55% uh, percent plus state schools. If you want to see a uh, public school dominated university, go and look at Exeter, Durham and others. But of course, we are selective. What's really interesting about the Oxford cohort now is that this is the first cohort of students from Oxford ever who don't have a guaranteed future because there are so few opportunities now to do well in life. Only the 1% are seeing their incomes rise Oxford and Cambridge produce 1% of all children, but of course they don't dominate the 1%. So a large number of our graduates are not going to do well when well, this is the first time it's ever happened to Oxford and Cambridge, and they're beginning to recognize it. I
0: have, a, I have
2: a question later, but I am still forming it in my head. I wouldn't hear from you specifically. Yeah, now, Just okay. because um, I don't know your name and I don't yeah. know. all
0: right, my name is Rupert Huck, and since uh, May of last year, I can add the letters MP on the end of that. I'm still partly pinching myself, but I managed to get elected as Member of Parliament for Ealing Central in Acton, which is my home seat where I grew up, so it's an enormous privilege to represent your teachers, people like this. When I was door knocking for 18 months, you never knew who you'd get. Sometimes it was my parents' friends from the 60s who helped civilise them into the ways of Ealing when they came to this country. Sometimes it was my own school teachers from the 80s. Sometimes it was people from my own school run, and so I'm kind of a academic trapped in a politician's body or something, because until May the 5th of last year, I was, well, actually, I guess I started off in an elitist place. I was an undergraduate at Cambridge University a long time ago, but I taught then Russell Group University of Manchester. I ended up at Kingston University, so one of these uh, widening participation type of places. I, my main, I was a sociologist, and my main specialism was... Uh, well, I started off doing youth culture, but then I felt slightly fraudulent researching the generation when, with so much grey hair as I have. So I kind of turned into sociology of suburbia, because as I see it, there's loads and loads of urban sociology about urban malaise and people jumping off tower blocks or whatever it is, but not many people look at suburbs. And on some estimates, 80% of us live in suburbs now, but they're kind of the... I don't know, they're seen as a bit naff and twitching the net curtains and all that kind of thing. And you mentioned uh, Keep the Asper distress mm. Flying. The one I used to always quote was Coming Up for Air, another George Orwell novel. Do you know that one at all, anyone? So it's a character called George Bowling, first person narration, and he talks about how he's living in his suburban street, which is a line of semi-detached torture chambers all in a row. So, I mean, it links with a lot of these things that are people being deluded, that they're in this false consciousness of being happy. I think he says at another stage, uh, another page of that book, that nine out of 10 people in this street think they own their homes, they don't, the building society does. And, um, but I mean, even to live in a scuzzy suburban house is now becoming unobtainable. So as an MP, I do weekly surgery every Friday I think other MPs do it fortnightly or monthly, but with a majority my size. And I kind of think that's what I'm here for. So just as at Kingston University, I had zero career progression. So far, I have had zero career progression in Parliament, but I do a lot of surgeries. And the most prominent thing that comes through the door in the inbox, in the post bag, for people who write in the old fashioned way, is housing. And we are paying more and more to become more and more insecure. So just, I mean, any, I'm 43 years old, I think, yeah. yes. Uh, anyway, whatever, anyone slightly younger than me, anyone younger than me or anyone a bit slower than me to get their foot on that property ladder has completely given up all hope of ever being there. And that's sad and wrong. And the fact that the small amount of social housing that we have left is being privatized by this government, they want to sell off housing association properties the way they're paying for it is, Selling council houses, the so-called high value ones that in London is the entire stock of many London boroughs, even in an outer London borough like mine in Ealing, a lot of our council properties will go when those are anything over four hundred thousand I think is to be sold off to pay for the discount. it doesn't make sense they didn't expect to win, yeah. and even that lot have told me you know I've said oh i didn't expect to necessarily be here and Uh, in opposition, yeah, that's it. Because for 18 months as a candidate, I was saying to people, you know, vote for me, and if I'm there, that means we can sort it. Because uh, I was meant to be the trigger seat that when Ealing Central and Acton is won, Ed Miliband is PM. And it didn't quite work out like that. And if I had a pound for every text I had on the night that said a ray of light on a bleak night, I'd have a lot of little round ones by now. Mm. But uh, so I'm sort of lowest of the low opposition backbencher unambitious or whatever, but I've carried on doing the academic stuff. So Danny does engage with politicians. I've met him more times in the House of Commons than I have on the academic circuit, and we were both doing the same job, kind of in the same field for many years before that. I mean, I think all of these things are a shifting target. So remember, up until the crash of 08, the Conservatives were going to stick to Labour's spending plans. And that's one thing that we on the left accused new labor of being timid when up to 97 they were saying we will stick to the conservative spending plans which they did in the beginning and then they adopted all these weird ideas like PFI and PPP and all these contracts that our grandchildren will be paying into the grave with no break clause even I think the potted plants in Port Pulis House in the House of Commons are on some crazy handcuffs (laughs) contract so I mean they do flip and they do shift I mean I've seen this the budget that we had recently the budget gets debated over four days. From day one to day three, it had entirely changed because there'd been the weekend when they had the wobbly when Ian Duncan Smith suddenly discovered a conscience and resigned. (laughs) So I mean, they are pretty shambolic. So I don't know if they're even, it's such a big master plan. I think the thing about the selling off of the housing association stock, they never thought they'd have to enact it. I think at the end, because that came out within the election campaign. I think someone probably said, bring us something big. Cameron probably said, bring me a big idea. There's no big idea. So they invented this thing. They never thought it through. It's a disaster. The other thing that I get a lot of is immigration. It depends where, because my seat is so varied. So, I mean, um, the South Acton estate, you've probably seen on the opening titles of Only Fools and Horses. The tower blocks in that were not Peckham. They were in South Acton. So it's got bits that look like that, but then Ealing Common, Ealing Broadway Ward, lush, lush, detached suburbia. Even within suburbia, there are many suburbias kind of thing. So where I live is a small Edwardian house. But even the, the the third bedroom, very small box room sort of thing. But even the people who live in those kind of streets can't afford to move out, so they all do their lofts. And on house particulars in South Ealing, it says unconverted loft. Because that's a good thing. You don't have someone else's jerry-built one. You can make it in your own way, kind of thing. So all these people, I feel, are kind of trapped. So suburbia was meant to be this combination between the lush rural idyll and, you know, easy journey into the city, for me, quick Piccadilly line so, so in. And now it's become a bit of a pressure cooker of pressurise people, dual earner income to keep that yeah. mortgage going. But,
2: but, but, but could, could, yeah. could Labour worry about these wider things? Yeah. Or is Labour likely just to say, we're not as nasty as this lot and we you know we're going to do a few nice things? Is it possible that there'll be a change? Of
0: leadership?
2: Well, there has been a change <laughs> of leadership, a, tra- a, cha- a change. i <laughs> not allowed to say no tweeting. A change in the heart of the party from, Gordon Brown was committed to 2% GDP growth which was a commitment to widening global inequality. You know, is it possible for the party to, to stop thinking that GDP growth and maximising employment is the key thing and actually worry about the kind of things that people worry about who are on the left in France and Germany and Scandinavia and Denmark?
0: I, mean, I think the new leadership is probably more open to that. It's probably the apogee of when that might happen. And I yeah. think John McDonnell is having a lot of economic seminars with people like and Pettifor, and I can't remember who else, that are sort of yeah, eminent, there you go. So. Joseph Stiglitz. Yeah. Stiglitz, yeah, people like that, Joseph Stiglitz, the American. So, I mean, there is, but the thing is, he's, there's a tension between the whipping system. I mean, again, if we really had the new politics, would I have had to be lobby fodder, trooping through a line and being ticked off tonight? As I say, I went to the first vote at seven, and the second one I bumped off, yeah. so I may be in trouble. But anyway, so, I mean, I think, it's a heart and head thing saying two different things. A lot of things come down to values, actually losing values. So for instance, um, I met someone the other day whose work is the antithesis of my PhD research in that she is employed in assessing exactly what one needs for a workplace, how much light you, window you need, whether you see something outside it, whether it's dark, etc., etc. It's like, well, hang on a minute. We've lost our values, surely, that this, we have to pay somebody and it's going to be part of standards. Basically, the standards, there's so much guidance on standards. um, And the reason we have to have these standards is because we've lost our standards, our
2: values. I I, I agree with you. I'll, I'll let my colleagues sum up in a second. What we do differently in this book to what Andrew Oswald did 10, 15 years ago he produced a price on happiness that said a marriage is worth 70,000 pounds and so on. Um, what we've done is put no price on anything. We're just looking at events that happen to you with no monetary values on them. To get away from the idea that you can turn everything into a value, which they're trying to do with the environment. You know, How much is the Isle of Wife and worth to biodiversity? So it's getting away from putting a price on it, no cost benefit analysis uh, with money But it is saying, the death of people you love, when it's a bad death, has such a bigger effect on you uh, than not having a holiday. And we really ought to worry about living in a society which prevents these deaths, rather than a society which maximizes the number of times we can fly to Spain, and not necessarily have such a good time. Because when you look at what happens to people, flying to Spain a lot is not making the population ecstatic. Right. Anyway. Danny, are you going to finish off? <laughs> any, any final comment? Yeah, just look at any other parliament building in our continent. We'll just look at Scotland. There is very, something very strange about this country at this time. And in the past, whenever you've been in the most extreme situation, whenever you've had the greatest inequality, whenever you've been the most odd, that has been the place that has changed. I, mean, I think it is very, very likely to change. Um, But it won't change without people saying, this is not good enough, something else is possible. All these things that we say are wrong, really are wrong. And when people say, but I'm happy in suburbia because my house is going to pay for my pension, you have to explain you know, which young person with no great income and massive debt is actually going to sort out your pension. Uh, The worst things in, in the book, I think, are what is happening to the elderly. Uh, We have a huge rise in mortality amongst the elderly, a 5.6% rise in England and Wales, increased deaths, almost a 9% rise in Scotland. Life expectancy will be reported to be falling come this July. The life for elderly people in care homes is getting worse. And I think the real tragedy of this is, is that the bulk of the elderly, these are people in their late 70s and 80s, are people who voted Conservative in the 1980s because it's mainly only conservative voters who get to live that long. Uh, And if you really want to worry about the stuff in this, just think about what your last five or 10 years of life are are likely to be like if we don't change things. And just purely selfishly, you can think, it really is worth my while, even if I'm quite well off, trying to alter British society. Otherwise, I'll be stuck in a care home with somebody paid the minimum wage, supposed to be looking after me with a family who can't find the time to come and visit me because they're too busy on the rat run trying to do all the things they're supposed to do. So I think there's all kinds of reasons for better politics. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out
1: more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.